I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on a special Pledge Drive edition of Life Examined, we're bringing you a couple of our favorite interviews. Author and philosopher Alan DeBotton shares his recipe for love, fulfillment, and finding the ideal partner. The people that we really feel we need to be with aren't those with whom everything's always perfect. It's those who seem to have space for our complexity, who seem able to forgive us for our strangeness, and who seem to have tenderness for our most awkward sides. These are the people we need to be with, and of course, do exactly the same thing for them. And later, are you feeling stressed out? How a little anxiety might be good for you? We've started to equate mental health with an absence of all emotional discomfort. And so now we have this sort of standard of really a a toxic standard of positivity where we feel that unless we're happy all the time and crushing it all the time, we are failing in mental health. Alan DeBotton and psychologist Tracy Dennis-Tawari. That's all coming up on Life Examined on KCRW. You're listening to KCRW during our fall pledge drive. It's that time of year when we ask you for your support. If you enjoy Life Examined and you listen every week, please consider making a donation, small or large, to help support what we do. Go to kcrw.com give. This week, we've picked two of our favorite interviews. We start most appropriately with love and philosopher Alan DeBotton. Over the last 50 years, our views have significantly shifted on relationships and marriage. Centuries ago, not much thought was given to personal happiness and fulfillment, or indeed, love. Cultural shifts in emancipation, longer life expectancy, and even dating apps have shifted that paradigm. And with that, our relationship expectations, from spouse to soulmate and even teammate— So what kind of qualities make for a good partnership? Do we really need to share common interests? Are we too picky or over-focused on the wrong things? Philosopher, co-founder, and chairman of the School of Life, Alan DeBotton, has made it his mission to show and teach philosophy's relevance to everyday living. His books include Essays in Love, Why You'll Marry the Wrong Person, and my personal favorite called How Proust Can Change Your Life. Alan DeBotton, welcome to Life Examined. Such a pleasure. It could just be anecdotally, but I I feel like when I check in with our culture, or it just could be my community, I hear so much of of marital strain or people seeking new love or new chapters or uh, different studies, whether divorce is going up or down. But I'm fascinated in this question of love in this current century, and you yourself have also been fascinated by love and have written so much about it. And I I thought we should start there. Uh, Kind of an open question to you. But such a good one, such an important one. Look, I I see it like this. For most of human history, people were okay with just having bearable relationships. They they didn't expect to deeply love the people that they got together with. Love was imagined as a, a passing ecstatic state, not something that would last beyond six months when you were young. We've now become so ambitious about what our relationships could be. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, But if we're going to be that ambitious, we need to do some work. In other words, we need to do the labor that our expectations require. And we're not doing it. Um, What I mean by work primarily, and apologies if this sounds sort of reductive, but but let me state my my, my belief here. I believe that the single greatest invention and development in the humanities of the last 120 years has been psychoanalysis and with it in its wake psychotherapy. I'm not identifying one particular school or denomination, but broadly speaking, the idea 
that the behaviour that we manifest in the present was substantially shaped by dynamics that are only semi-conscious and that owe a lot to our earliest years. Mm. This seems to me, you know, forgive the audience if, if, if you don't agree, incontestably true and nevertheless still constantly hard to really get a handle on because it's such a challenge to the way that we operate day to day where we broadly assume that we're in total command of what we want and think and do and that our actions are entirely in the purview of our rational minds. And psychoanalysis comes along and says, no, that's not true. You know, most of us, most of who we are, is sunk in darkness. Now, what on earth does this have to do with love? You know, when two people are interacting, you don't just have two people. First of all, you've got four people. You've got both sets of parents immediately in the room, you know, in the bedroom, dare I say it. Um, You've got aunts, uncles, generations behind them. We are the products of more than just ourselves. And this makes the average relationship just dizzyingly complicated, but also amazing. Um, And look, I would say this, you know, anyone who isn't thrilled by the complexity of modern day love shouldn't, you know, go anywhere near it. The only way to make the whole thing bearable is to see it as interesting and to be curious about it. And the partner that all of us need is not someone who is perfect because no one's perfect, but someone who can join us in the adventure. And I really mean it's an adventure um, of mutual exploration of one another's psyches. We're all crazy. All of us are crazy. You know, if you go on a date with somebody and they refuse to admit they're crazy, they are really crazy. (laughs) The people we need are not totally you know, sane ones, there aren't any. They're people who are modest enough and graceful enough to confess, you know, with, with good humour that, of course, you know, they they come to the table damaged, but someone who knows where the damage is and can admit to it with a little bit of humour maybe, this is the kind of person we need. It's so true that the sense that our, our relationships in some ways are, are predetermined or have essences of, of our parents, of certain family systems we were born into. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. I mean, there, there's this idea, for example, in psychoanalysis that um, if, if you're a male, heterosexual, you're, you're, you may marry your mother, unconsciously or consciously, or marry into the dynamics of your parents' relationships. And that's something that does seem to be true when we look at this, just pattern after pattern, no? Absolutely. You know, we are technically free to marry and get together with whoever we like. Uh, This has been the great liberation of the modern age. But what we don't fully appreciate is just how psychologically restricted we are. Mm. Um, And, you know, we pick this up and we say, you know, I, I met so-and-so, they were really cute, they were really good-looking, but I just don't feel attracted to them. What we're really talking about here often is a kind of psychological attraction. And, you know, let's be let's be frank here. Sometimes what we miss in somebody is the fact that they may not torture us. Mm-hmm. They may not make us unhappy. They may not make us suffer in the way that we feel we need to suffer in order to feel familiar. And um, it's, again, part of the the dizzying excitement of uh, modern love. Well, let me ask you this. Say say you find yourself in, in just that very scenario. You have found someone in which previous marital relational patterns are uh, have been borne out. 
Is that a functional relationship? Is that one in which there can ultimately be satisfaction and, and, and comfortability or all these <laughs> incompatible things that we want in a relationship anyway? Well, I, I would say that what's immediately important is to get this on the table mm. because suffering in silence is you know, obviously going to be the end of love, trust, communication. In other words, if you find yourself um, both you know, really admiring somebody, really liking them, but if you suddenly start to feel a little bit sick because they've been so sweet to you, maybe they've remembered it's your birthday and bought you a really lovely present. And on the one hand, you're grateful. And on the other, you feel nauseous. Mm. Um, Don't suffer in silence. Try and get a handle on what's going on and say to your partner, you know, I, I thank you so much for doing what you're doing to me. But I have to admit something to you. You know, in my childhood, this didn't happen very often. In my childhood, when good things happen, this was often the prelude to abandonment mm. and to something bad happening. Yeah. Therefore, though I'm deeply grateful, I'm also totally freaked out by your gift. And I'm feeling like I need to lie down and maybe run away from you. Can I tell you this? And you know, a, a really good partner on the other end of that, rather than panicking, rather than throwing it back in their face and getting offended, will go, you know what, this is, you know, we're all crazy. It's okay. Um, I've got my crazy bits too. This is your crazy bit. Um, if you don't mind, let's just sit with this. Let's sit with, you know, my desire to please you and your desire to freak out when, you know, I do so. And let's talk about it. And I suspect that in the second wave of this kind of acknowledgement of the first wave of complexity will come a new feeling of trust and openness. As I say, the people that we really feel we need to be with aren't those with whom everything's always perfect. It's those who seem to have space for our complexity, who seem able to forgive us for our strangeness, and who seem to have tenderness for our most awkward sides. These are the people we need to be with and, of course, do exactly the same thing for them. It's interesting because I think that in in any marriage or relationship, uh, there will inevitably be hard times, however you define those. And there is this, um, perhaps it's this romantic vision that you referenced earlier or something else that, oh, but it could probably be easier with somebody else. Or there's someone else out there in which this specific varietal of suffering, I love how you use that, the variety of suffering, um, would be would be slightly different. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this, the kind of imaginary other that we could bring in, in which life would be different. Mm. Look, this is how I see it. There's a kind of... Um depressive vision of love, which says at first it's exciting and then gradually we lose interest and we want other people. And of course, that's, you know, a a very common experience. But, But let me posit a more hopeful scenario. You know, we don't need people who will always, let's say, remain young or always do exactly what we want to do. What we first and foremost want is a partner who makes us feel understood and heard. And I, I know that we, I, I know this may not sound unfamiliar to, to many of your listeners, mm. but, but let's just pause and really understand what that means. If someone makes you feel that almost anything that goes through your mind is okay, and is something they may be interested in, and it may be the desire to take up with a new partner, it may be the desire to throw in the job and go and live in a hut somewhere, it, however outlandish and strange, if your partner is someone who's kind of curious about that, they they see it as part of their their role as a partner to to be curious about your mind and to be open. I think this is the most attractive quality. I, I don't think that anyone 
who's on the receiving end of that openness will ever leave their partner. Of course, they'll recognise when they go to the mall or, or, or hang out at a party that there are other people who may be momentarily more exciting, more physically graceful, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, we, we will register that, but not act upon it. Because ultimately, what we've got in our partner is someone who is listening open-mindedly and with curiosity. And there is literally nothing more attractive and nothing more guaranteed to, to make a relationship last. And, you know, dating apps get this wrong for us because they're always trying to direct us towards people who share our interests. Yeah. And while it matters a little bit that someone plays golf if you play golf and they like fishing if you like fishing and they vote this if you vote this, etc. At the end of the day, none of that counts anywhere near as much as a desire to be curious and an ability to understand the mind of the other one. It, there could be a thousand differences, but so long as there is that basic tender curiosity in, in one another's lives, then anyone can be doing anything and it's going to be okay. So I think this is too often missed when people say, oh, relationships are doomed to get unexciting. Mm. You know, if you want to go on a date night and have an exciting time with your partner, it's nothing about lighting a candle or going to a hotel. The most attractive kind of thing that you can do to your partner is to start asking questions like this, to ask them, for example, um, what's been on your mind lately? How have I been frustrating you? What is it about our relationship that sometimes gets you down? Mm -hmm. What could we do better? Um, what is it you still like about me? And how could I change to get things to go better for you? These are some of the most aphrodisiacal questions that we could ever ask uh, and hear and be on the receiving end of. This is the kind of stuff that gets couples going again because it increases the blood flow through the heart of love. Mm. You talked about, for example, the 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 incredible breakthrough uh, that psychotherapy has had on our culture. Do you do you suggest? I mean, a lot of these questions to me are are the at the heart of also doing couples therapy or counseling. Do you, do you suggest that couples go get that help if they need it, and that there that is one place to ask these questions? Yes, absolutely. But look, let me be honest here. Um, I'm a huge advocate and fan of psychotherapeutic theory. Mm -hmm. I also want to say that there are many therapists out there who are not very good. And I'm sorry <laughs> if you're listening. But, but you know, it's really the case. And I think that if you find yourself in the company of therapists who are not making much of a difference, leaving you uncomfortable, um, shop around, move around, do not sit and suffer or give up on yourself or give up on your couple too easily. Move around and, and look around. I think that very often, you know, there's a, there's a very brave thing that psychotherapists have to do with their clients. And that is, at a certain point, stop listening and start to have a thesis about why the couple or the individual are not doing so well. Mm. And many therapists um, step back a little bit gingerly from that challenge. They don't have a robust and active sense of what the treatment involves and needs to target. And so you get these sort of shapeless therapies that just go on and on. And somehow, you know, it's very easy as a therapist just to keep listening. But at some point, you've got to stop listening and you have to put forward um, an interpretation. Mm. And you say, guys, you're doing this wrong, or this is happening, etc. And it's a scary moment for the therapist, because you could lose your client. Right. And many clients, um, and many therapists sort of hold back from that. And, and then, as I say, you get these, these slightly 
ill-defined therapies. So therapy, yes, your particular therapist, if they're not working for you, consider a change. Yeah, I appreciate that insight. And I, I, I'm sure many of our listeners do as well. Uh, I, I wonder how much of modern culture and modern theories and pressures and commercial attitudes about love need to be tuned out, whether it's all of the uh, magazines about what a wedding should look like or dramas about what a functioning relationship should look like or or any of that stuff. Uh, how, How does one navigate those things? Yeah. I mean, look, it's such an important point. I think I think your listeners will probably feel at some level, either very strongly or partly, um, that the environment in which we live, the social and cultural environment in which we live in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. but also across the United States, across the developed world, is deeply, deeply unhelpful to finding what you could broadly call peace of mind. The the images that we see beamed at us, the messages that we pick up on our phones, the, the chatter and atmosphere of the social world, none of this is well geared to relaxing us. And I think we all of us have some sense that if we could get away from that, if somehow we could pull away, and some of us try for a little bit with meditation or walks in nature or, you know, going to do some cooking with everything switched off, you know, we, we, we try and find a balance. But I think the problem is very deep and we almost can't realise how much this drags us down. It drags down our relationships, but it, it drags down our spirits generally. I think that in order to be the people we really want to be, we need to be extremely tough editors of the messages that reach our ears. Mm. And that will involve our phones, which are possibly the single greatest tool of modern misery. Uh, But it also involves every screen we're likely to come across. Many of us have friends who are not worthy of the name. We call them friends, but in their impact on our souls, on what they do to us, they actually exhaust us, they drain us, they project onto us all kinds of negative feelings. We need rid of them. Um, And so I think we need a general curation of the inflammation and moods that, that, that reach us. And that way we will be the calmer, kinder people that I think we are sometimes in the middle of the night when it's just us and the universe, when it's just us and the stars. We feel then a kind of connection to something calmer, deeper and kinder. But that's very hard to maintain at 9am on a Monday morning. But, but we should try, that could almost be our life's goal. Um, and it's it's very hard, particularly in the Los Angeles area yeah. and, you know, in many of the large conurbations of the world. That peace of mind is very hard to come by and it does pollute our love. I, I'm interested that you brought in friendships here, which has been a really important theme on our program. And I remember very clearly a moment where somebody asked me, when you spend time with, with so-and-so person, are you left with more energy or left with a feeling of exhaustion and negativity, which is something I think you just hit on there. Um, I, I'd love to explore friendship with you and why you think it's so important, especially mm. now and in the modern world. Mm. Well, I'll start with a confession. I'm very lonely. Mm. I don't have enough friends. I mean, I have met a huge range of people. I, I come into contact with a huge range of people, but I'm lonely. You know, I have two good friends in the world. Um, one of them lives quite far away from me, and the other one is often busy and sadly is quite ill. So I'm very often left feeling, I wish I had better friends. And it's not 
that, you know, I'm surrounded by awful people. It's just I don't find the connection, the curiosity, the emotional openness that I seek in a friend. And I'm confessing this kind of openly and in a way, deliberately, pathetically, in order to encourage listeners to feel, hmm, maybe I'm, in a way, if I'm honest with myself, also in that boat. As I say, it's not that I have no one to have dinner with. It's that I have no one, very few people, to truly connect with. And it's as big a problem, perhaps a bigger problem for many of us than relationships, because the, the search for a good partner is very well, you know, there's a lot of people thinking about that, a lot of guides, a lot of, a lot of conversations yes. around it. The search for a good friend is, is a more silent one. We, we generally assume that unless we've just moved town, uh, unless we're kind of new in a place, we should have friends. But no, I, I think it's very possible to have reached, you know, middle age and later and still be lacking in friends. This isn't a personal deficiency. It's, it's a sign of how demanding it is and how arduous it is to find the connection we long for. Once again, that was author and philosopher Alan DeBotton. You can find a link to our full interview at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Coming up, psychologist Tracy Dennis-Tawari on living in an age of anxiety and why it's not as bad for you as you might think. That's coming up in just a moment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. Welcome back to Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening during our fall pledge drive. We just heard Alan DeBotton talk about love, relationships, and the value of friendship. He cited loneliness and the difficulty in finding human connection. I wanted to follow up this conversation by talking about something I've heard a lot on this show, stress and anxiety. Approximately one-third of all Americans are dealing with some level of anxiety or an anxiety disorder, and that includes our young people and kids. Of all the mental health illnesses, anxiety disorders are the most common. And in the first year of the pandemic, the World Health Organization estimated a 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide, and the numbers are on the rise. But are the current efforts to control our anxiety actually making it worse? Is anxiety the problem, or is it our fear of it? Tracy Dennis-Tawari is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Hunter College in New York, where she directs the Emotion Regulation Lab. Her latest book is called Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You Even Though It Feels Bad. Tracy Dennis-Tawari, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be with you. Let's just talk about some of the the staggering statistics that are out there. Um, I've heard, for example, that it could be up to 30% of adults could be dealing with some level of anxiety or an anxiety disorder. Can you talk about just what we're seeing in the world around us, or at least in the U.S.? Right. The mental health crisis that we're facing is is really quite profound, and it dwarfs any other kind of disease. Um, And so when we look at mental health in general, a full half of us will struggle with a mental health problem in our lifetime. So that's tens and tens of millions of us um, just in the United States alone. And then anxiety disorders are the most common of the mental health diseases. 
And a third of us, the stat you were mentioning, a third of us will be clinically anxious, really suffer from debilitating anxiety, again, in our lifetime. But when you start parsing out, you know, in any one year, how many people are suffering, you know, how many kids are suffering, really we're always between hovering around 20 to 30% of people are struggling with anxiety. Why do you think anxiety is the most common of these mental health disorders? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I think that we often feel as if we're living in an overwhelming age of anxiety. It's the word that we've settled on <laughs> in a way, right? And when I, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, and when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, the word, our go-to word for any sort of uncomfortable feeling was stress. So if you were going through something really hard, you would say, I'm really stressed out. And if you were, go if you were planning your wedding and going through something really joyful, you would say, I'm stressed out. So it, it's this placeholder. And the thing about anxiety as a placeholder for emotional discomfort is that the fundamental ingredient in anxiety is uncertainty. It's anxiety, it feels like fear, but it's actually not fear. Anxiety is apprehension, this nervous feeling that we get when we anticipate the uncertain future, right? What's around the bend? It hasn't happened yet. Something bad could happen, but also something good. And if there's any one word that describes our times right now, I think it is uncertainty. So I think like the first time that the age of anxiety was applied to a period of time, and that was actually when um, W.H. Auden wrote uh, his epic poem called The Age of Anxiety right after World War II. And of course, talk about another time of yeah. every assumption you had about the world getting blown out of the water, everything just seeming a, a new world order that you were facing. I think now with our rapid technological changes, fresh out of a pan, you know, fresh out of, but also in a pandemic, um, all the changes that we see in our economic lives and our social lives, I think that we feel that uncertainty very strongly. Mm. I think you're you're really smart to pick on the the language here or the, the popularity of certain words, because I, I've noticed this as well, that anxiety has just become such such a common word. I mean, I, I, I was reading one of your pieces that it was like the Oxford word of the year or something last year, yeah. right? It, 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 <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's so commonplace to say, I'm feeling anxious or I'm dealing with anxiety. And I think, therefore, the word then becomes a catch-all for a lot of emotions, just as stress might have been. So I think it, it is important for us to actually narrow the definition into something a little bit more precise versus thinking it's something we're always feeling all the time, you know? I, I agree. It's, it's this sort of, we paint, it's this, and it's, it's because clearly anxiety is not a good thing to us when we use that mm. word, <laughs> you know? It's, right. And so we paint every experience that's uncomfortable or uncertain with this very um, broad brush of negativity and fear. And there's so many problems with that <laughs> approach. And I think that we mental health professionals have really been part of this problem. It's, it's really one of the reasons I, I felt moved to write this book because we have a lot of uh, mistakes to make up for, <laughs> to make amends for. So we've started to equate mental health with an absence of all emotional discomfort. And, and so now we have this sort of standard of really a, a toxic standard of positivity where we feel that unless we're happy all the time and crushing it all the time and optimized for everything all the time like a robot, we are failing in mental health. And there's, there's a few, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's probably a list of a dozen things that are problematic about that. But when it comes to anxiety, there are very 
specific things that that causes problems with. One is that we start to feel, as you've said, when we've given this vague name to every uncomfortable feeling, we call it anxiety, we start to feel that um, these feelings are dangerous and our, you know, it's this disease story we tell, right? That these are these dangerous feelings. And the only solution to a disease is to eradicate it and prevent it. And the other thing about a disease or something that's dangerous is that it's probably a malfunction. Mm. So that means we have to fix it. So this, this kind of two-part disease story of anxiety unfortunately causes us and, or, or kind of primes us to do all the things that are most unhelpful when it comes to anxiety. So first of all, it makes us not become granular, as you were saying, kind of vaguely talking about anxiety instead of getting granular. And we start to lose the ability to tell healthy anxiety from unhealthy anxiety or an anxiety disorder. It just all becomes the same thing. And then we start avoiding it, which causes anxiety to only increase and become more intense. There's a very poignant story that you write about in the book. It has to do with with something you experienced while you were pregnant. And I, I was wondering if you could if you could tell us that story. Yes, that was one of the most anxiety provoking experiences of my life. And it was a an, an enduring experience. When I was twenty weeks pregnant, I discovered at my, you know, mid pregnancy uh, ultrasound that my firstborn, my son, uh, had a congenital heart condition. So we were very lucky uh, in the sense that we caught it while I was still pregnant. So now you can imagine how, you know, my husband and I, we were pretty devastated. Um, I remember crawling into bed and, and, and just feeling like I didn't want to get out and, and kind of crying myself to sleep. I took a nap. I, I really feared for his life because this was a, uh, a heart condition that would, re- would require open heart surgery and could be life-threatening. But then I woke up from the nap, I kind of dried my tears, and then my anxiety kicked in. <laughs> and, and, and what that did for me is it helped me fight off despair and it sent me into this future tense where, okay, I knew that I had to work really hard to make sure my son had the best chance possible at surviving and really, and, and not only surviving, but thriving after this condition. So I got on the phone, I called every doctor friend I knew and I found out where the best cardiothoracic surgeon was. What, what practice should I go to to make sure that we're ready for open heart surgery at birth if need be? How do I get the best prenatal care? How do I, so I went into action mode. And despite lots of barriers and, and worries, I, I persisted. My husband and I were working very hard. And then when I had my son, Covey, um, we had another big challenge ahead. We had to make sure that he didn't have failure to thrive and not be able to successfully live through open heart surgery. And so we had a lot of work to do there. So, so long story short, there was action I needed to take. I needed to persist through obstacles. And very importantly, and again, we don't think of anxiety this way, I needed to keep hoping hmm. and believing that a good outcome was possible. When we despair, we believe that hope is, is gone, that it, it's extinguished. But anxiety is not that kind of an emotion. Anxiety keeps us believing that we have possibility in the world, that we have control in the world, and that we can still hope for a good outcome. Mm. And so that, I believe, as painful as anxiety was, it also was my ally in that time. And I had to negotiate with that ally. I had to work through my anxieties. I had to make sure it didn't start getting in my way. I had to keep actively coping and take care, taking care of myself. But I believe that anxiety helped me be the best mom possible through this very difficult period in our life. I guess I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about 
the difference between commonplace anxiety, a, a natural feature of being a human, and, and when something tips over into an actual anxiety disorder, which requires clinical treatment? That's a crucial distinction. And I think that's why the disease model of anxiety causes more harm than good, because it's not, there's no blood test, as you say. It's not like cancer, where clearly you get cancer, you need to eradicate it, you need to prevent it. And anxiety disorders are not that way. So the key difference between anxiety and an anxiety disorder is not having intense or frequent anxiety. I can have intense anxiety every day and I won't be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder unless the ways that I'm coping with that anxiety are getting in the way of living my life fully and in ways that give me fulfillment and joy. So, for example, again, if I have the example I used before, intense social anxieties, I can have strong anxieties every day. But it's only when I start not going to work anymore, mm -hmm. when I start staying inside and never seeing friends anymore, when, you know, when, when, again, these are ways of coping with those anxieties is disrupting. It's called functional impairment. It's only when you have functional impairment that you actually diagnose an anxiety disorder. And that's important because, as you say, again, no blood test for an anxiety disorder, but we can look at ourselves in our life and say, okay, I've been really struggling with this anxiety. I've been handling it okay so far, but I just got tipped over the edge because life just threw me one too many curveballs and I, I just, I need that extra support. So a lot of figuring out the difference is knowing when we need that extra support Remembering at the same time that mental health is not the absence of emotional discomfort, right. <laughs> you know, so, right. so to know that we can struggle and, but I think all of us should see therapists and, spe and speak to them frequently because it's always great to have another perspective or if not a therapist, a religious uh, uh, advisor or a great friend who makes you get that perspective that you know just always is helpful. What about, though, aside from seeing a therapist or, or other type of, of guide, which I think is, you know, obviously so valuable, um, I mean, we hear of, of medications as well that are used to treat anxiety. And um, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the overprescription of things like benzodiazepines. This is Clonopin, Ativan, Xanax, um, also the fear of addiction through some of those as well, and then treating it through antidepressants, like SSRIs. But I mean, do you feel that for those that need medication, that there are good answers out there and that people should go that route if they need it? I think that medication can be a very important helpmate when we need to seek therapy for debilitating anxiety. Mm. I, at the same time, believe that benzodiazepines in particular are radically overprescribed and they're prescribed in irresponsible ways because what people have not been taught properly or to the full extent is the risks that they pose both for addiction um, as, as well as for other kinds of side effects and synergistic effects with other substances. And we also haven't been taught that benzodiazepines were never intended to be a long-term solution. Mm. The, first of all, the science of them, which they're serious, you know, these are very serious drugs. They um, have been prescribed to hundreds of millions of people and they are highly um, risky when it comes to overdose. And, um, and especially when combined with other kinds of painkillers, uh, substances, other nervous system depressants. So we don't, we're really not aware enough of how addictive they are and how risky they are. 
And we think that we should just, every time we feel um, anxious, nervous, when we're struggling, we should, as they say, pop a zanny. You know, mm -hmm. it should be something in our pocket and we just use it. But the science shows again and again and again that the most effective and least risky way of using benzodiazepines is in combination with therapy, not alone, and as a short-term solution to help bring people back down to a baseline where they're not so overwhelmed by anxiety that they can then benefit from therapeutic treatments that are gold standard. Mm. So if we think of the, the old adage, you know, give a person a fish and they'll eat for a day, teach a person to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime, benzodiazepines and other anti-anxiety meds are the fish. And cognitive behavioral therapies and other validated therapies are teaching people to fish. And it's really crucial that we don't, uh, that we mental health professionals don't convey this idea that, oh, you're anxious, just take Xanax or some other anti-anxiety medication and that's your lifelong solution. It, they were never meant to be that. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting in the medical profession, if you're a prescriber and somebody comes in with symptoms, the easiest thing to do is to write a script, of course. And and I think that's that's the power of medical professionals. And And yet I think that and, and there's clearly moments where that's so important. I mean, I, I believe that medication saves lives. Um, but but it is true that we, we've ended up in, just as you say, kind of just treating, treating the symptom, giving the fish perhaps more than looking at the underlying causes. I, I agree. And we can also see a broader societal trend here when we look at the opioid crisis, I think, mm. that the, and the benzodiazepine crisis, which is, you know, when you look at overdose deaths, Leading is still, are still the opioids, followed by benzodiazepines. And I think that the common thread here is that we believe that all experiences of pain, physical or emotional, need to be immediately dulled with powerful drugs. And again, as you say, these drugs can also save lives, but they're being used in radically irresponsible ways. As, of course, I don't need to educate anyone about the opioid crisis, I think, I think we're all fully aware at the terrible toll of, of the wide and overprescribed use of opioids on all of our, uh, our, our, I mean, we're probably all one degree removed from someone yeah. who's really been affected. But I feel that it's this attitude of the medical professionals that, oh, you come in, you say you're upset on a regular basis with anxiety, I'm gonna give you a drug first before anything else. I think that is a real disservice because again, it's only when it's in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy or other therapeutic um, skill-based techniques that we have a, a actually science telling us that use of medications can be helpful to uh, someone suffering from anxiety. Really fascinating point here. I mean, and and I remember just reading myself about the opioid epidemic, and and one of the 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 kind of marketable pieces of all of this was that pain is bad. Any type of pain is bad. And I think you're making, I think, an important connection here, which is not just physical pain, but any type of mental pain is also bad. It needs to be eradicated. And and maybe you can speak a little bit more about, I think, this cultural idea that, that we need to dull these things. And it may not just be through those, but it could be through alcohol. It could be through uh, cannabis. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we do this. It's the dulling of emotional pain that I think is at the crux of the mental health crisis we have now. And it's kind of, it, it, you know, it's a little counterintuitive, right? Mm. Because we have these great treatments and we have growing awareness and we're even destigmatizing mental health problems. 
And that all seems great, but the problem is, along with those good trends, is this trend to believe that all emotional discomfort is dangerous. And again, the problem with that is it primes us to do the most unhelpful things, more of the unhelpful things when it comes to mental health. And those are really, they fall squarely in this category of avoiding uncomfortable feelings, numbing the pain immediately, never actually building skills and believing that emotions are anti-fragile. And this is a really important concept I want to bring to the conversation here because um, we think of ourselves as emotionally fragile and so that when we're anxious, we are, are damaging ourselves. Something that is fragile is like a teacup. You drop it on the floor and it shatters into a million pieces and you can never put it back together again. The concept of anti-fragility, which Nassim Nicholas Taleb coined in his book, Anti-Fragility, is really the opposite of this. Something that's anti-fragile actually gains from being challenged. It gains from disorder and difficulty and strain. So the immune system is anti-fragile because unless we actually are exposed to viruses and bacteria and germs, and our immune system will never actually, our immune system will never learn to mount an immune response. It just can't work because, until it's challenged by these pathogens. Muscles are anti-fragile because if you never strained and worked a muscle, it would atrophy. And the, and the, and the fact and, and what science shows us in clinical practice, and honestly, I think um, kind of millennia of wisdom, <laughs> whether you know, philosophical and spiritual and otherwise, is that our emotions are also anti-fragile. And, and here I'm going to quote um, someone who I think is probably the patron saint of anxiety, mm -hmm. um, a, a philosopher that people both love and hate, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Um, and he wrote a whole book about anxiety 180 years ago. Mm. And he wrote, whosoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. He also said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. So, and he said so much more. <laughs> and, and, and really, the, the, the take home there is that anxiety is a feature of being human. It is part and parcel of the messy work of being human. And we can work with it. Once again, that was Tracy Dennis Tawari, professor of psychology at Hunter College. And the full interview is available online at kcrw.com slash life examined. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. But before we leave you today, if you like what you hear and are a fan of the show, please don't forget to show your support. The KCRW model is all about taking care of one another. Lots of people like you rely on this service, but not everyone is able to give. It only works because those who can give, give, or give a little more. That's the beauty of public radio. Go to kcrw.com give. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.